You're listening to Mr. Open Banking, the only podcast dedicated to exploring the open banking movement. Whether you're a financial expert, banking executive, or everyday consumer, open banking affects everyone and will change the way we interact with our money. I'm A.L. Savan, your host. This episode is brought to you by Axway, leaders in enterprise integration for over 20 years. It's no secret that on this show, we like to sing the praises of open banking. We've often talked about its potential to change the world for the better. The inspiring big picture, if you will. But when you're working on open banking in practice, trying to actually build something so new and so different from what came before, it can often feel like you're stumbling around in the dark, unsure of where to go next. This episode, our extra-long season finale, aims to open a door out of that darkness by delving into what is perhaps the single most successful open banking implementation in the world. To do that, we have to go back to the beginning. On the very first episode of this podcast, back in the summer of 2020, we invited Chris Michael, then the head of technology at UK Open Banking. Open banking is here now, and it's coming, and it's not going away. Well, Chris was right. Open banking is here. And the UK has become something of a beacon for the rest of the practitioners out there trying to get it right. Note that the success of UK open banking isn't theoretical. The numbers back it up. Their ecosystem now has over 300 active TPPs, or third-party providers, matching the rest of Europe put together. Their system processes over 800 million API calls a month to Europe's 500. Perhaps most telling of all, 3 million Britons actually use real-world open banking to make their banking easier and better. Today, the standard defined by UK Open Banking has been adopted as a starting point by countless other regions, including Brazil, who have used it to become one of the global leaders themselves, all in a single year. A big part of the reason the UK has been so successful is because they got an early start. Prior to the arrival of open banking, there was already a major national focus on financial technology or fintech, as well as competition in the financial sector. Building on the momentum of their fintech boom and leveraging that experience is what enabled the UK to create an unparalleled open banking ecosystem. And the story of its creation is filled with lessons to help others on the same path. Few people understand this better than our guest, one of the key figures behind the UK's fintech and open banking leadership, Charlotte Crosswell. Charlotte has spent the last 25 years serving in key leadership roles at the intersection between financial services, regulation, and technology, making her a veritable expert on today's rapidly evolving fintech landscape. 
From 2017 to 2021, Charlotte was the CEO of Innovate Finance, the leading industry body representing the explosive UK fintech sector. There, she worked closely with fintech entrepreneurs and regulators alike, making key contributions to the independent strategic review into UK fintech known as the Khalifa Review, published in February 2021. More recently, she's moved into a new role as the chair and trustee of the Open Banking Implementation Entity, or OBIE, the organization responsible for bringing open banking to the UK and, in the process, showing the rest of the world how it's done. Charlotte, wonderful to have you on the show. Oh, thank you, and thank you for the kind introduction. Let's start by setting the stage. The UK is often referred to as one of the most cutting-edge fintech environments in the world. You have spent your career right in the thick of that development. Why does the UK have such a strong reputation, and how did it get there? It's such an interesting question when we look at how did the UK take the lead into fintech or financial technology, as most people would would call it. And really, you can't just answer it in one simple uh, bullet point. You've got to look at the history. You've got to look at the evolution. You've got to look at what the city of London and the square mile, as people will know it, and why has that led us to a path where we are actually leading the world into fintech. Part of that, we have to look at the strong financial services ecosystem that we have in the UK. We have to look at the entrepreneurship that perhaps other countries could compete with the UK, but you marry that along to to the financial services ecosystem. And pre-COVID, I would actually say, look at the geographical proximity around that, small country, small city. So within 20 minutes of the city of London, you'll get to most of the fintechs that, that started in London, you'll get to most of the banks, you can probably get to any minister in government if you can get a meeting with them, and you'll get to the regulators as well. And what that enabled us to look at is post-financial crisis, how do we evolve financial services? How do we look at that and how do we bring competition into it? So part of that was obviously a regulatory desire to move things forward. Part of it was actually the banks wanting to show that they could install trust back into the financial services ecosystem. And part of it was government departments wanting to bring forward a new change, bringing more innovation, more openness, more transparency. And that really led us to creating this amazing fintech ecosystem. Now, I was involved in the tech days back in the late 90s. And in fact, I worked for for NASDAQ, um, the US exchange at the time. And when we look at the UK development, we have some incredible entrepreneurs, mostly based in either in London or in Cambridge and the ecosystems around that. But we never quite caught up with the US. We didn't perhaps have the ambition there. We didn't perhaps have that desire to push us forward. And so it's quite interesting when you look at, at fintech, you know, how did we manage to find our way to driving this forward and said to be seeing that global leader? So it's almost like we looked at our experience from before we looked at our banks, and there are more American banks in London than there are in New York, so that's my, one of my favorite statistics. And we looked at this perfect opportunity to bring forward change, to bring forward change for consumers, to bring forward change for businesses. And so maybe it was a bit lucky on timing, but it really was the marrying up of those entrepreneurs with the big financial service ecosystem and with the policymakers and the real desire to bring forward change. 
For four years, as the CEO of Innovate Finance, an industry body dedicated to supporting the UK fintech ecosystem, you were a big part of that marriage between the big banks and the fintechs and the regulators. Did you achieve what you set out to do in your time there? I think anybody who's ever run an industry body would would always say they probably never have quite achieved what they set out to do. And that's simply because there's obviously a huge landscape to, to work in, especially in fintech, where people would say, is that banking tech or is that reg tech? Is it insure tech? Fintech is, encapsulates an awful lot. And you always want to do more. So every day you have to turn away probably 50% of the things you get asked to look at. And you have to make that decision of which things are going to have the most relevance for your members as much as anything. I joined Innovate Finance because post-Brexit, I saw there was a slight divide coming in between industry and government. We'd had government really focusing on negotiations, industry getting frustrated that they weren't able to drive things forward and get the policy change they wanted. And so there was this real risk, just as we were on our nascent journey on fintech, that we could have lost our edge. And so the industry bodies, and this isn't just the fintech one, but all of the industry bodies play this really important role at that point, bringing those members there, bring them together with policymakers and showing them the opportunity you had to drive that forward and showing them some of the strategy in the path. And I think we did that. We really had close relationships with regulators, with policymakers, with ministers. And we've seen the Chancellor, the Exchequer talk about fintech. We've seen the Prime Minister talk about fintech. And it was really our mission to bring that up to the relevant policymakers while fostering this environment, not just to start up a fintech, wherever you were in the UK, not just London, but to scale up a fintech and put put that to global expansion. And I think during that time, there was an incredible boom in in the scaling up opportunities for, for these companies. So I was really happy with that. When I was about two years in, It was quite clear that because of just the the wide ranging amounts of products and services, half of the companies were regulated, half weren't because they were more the tech side of fin, that we needed to have an overarching strategy that could be presented to policymakers and to industry. So I was delighted when we were asked to work on the co-secretariat for the what's known as the Khalifa Review, the FinTech Review, which was headed up by Ron Khalifa. And Innovate Finance did a huge amount of work working with Ron and the City of London Corporation and the industry to map out what the future could look like and put recommendations in. And pleased to say, and I think I know Ron Khalifa is very happy with this, that a lot of those recommendations have already been taken forward and implemented, which is quite rare for a review. Sometimes they take quite a long time to, to go through. Can you give us some examples of the recommendations that were adopted? So the fact we needed a scale-up to address some of the talent gap, the fact we needed to have regulatory scale boxes to help those companies scale up, the fact we needed listing rules changed to help companies access the public markets, and the fact that we needed a national strategy rather than just a London and region strategy. And all of those things have already been taken forward, which considering the fact the review was only published at the end of February, is quite an achievement. And so it was a great time then to say that the strategy has been set And therefore, I could hand over to to a successor and then come and do something else. Insofar as the UK has a national digital strategy, how would you describe it? I think it's a great question because when you are working with policymakers and, and feeding into something like that, obviously you end up looking at many different government departments. So fintech is effectively owned by and is developed by Treasury with obviously the regulators behind it. The digital strategy is owned by a different department, uh, DCMS. 
and which sits alongside culture, media and sport. And the industrial strategy gets owned by the business department. So the challenge we now have, everything is going into digital, whether it's financial services, SMEs, telecommunications, even work and pensions, is how do you marry up those gaps in fragmentation between government? So I think there's still a lot of work to be done in that regard. And again, this is where industry bodies can play quite an important part by having a very strong industry message and feeding that in. But just because it's a scaling up fintech company, is that any different to a scaling up tech company? If you're going to sit there and, and ask people to use more online banking tools and, and looking at that and obviously coming into open banking shortly, we obviously need to have people who can access good Wi-Fi. So that's when you end up touching on other parts where you're reliant somewhat in other parts of the UK's digital strategy. And all we can really do is actually feed into that and look at where the industry is trying to move to and therefore what's an opportunity to take that forward. The UK success story did not begin with open banking. It began with an embrace of fintech, financial technology aimed squarely at innovation in banking. This is no small thing, as shaking up a sector as critical as banking demands strong cooperation between the fintechs and the incumbent banks, and between the two of them, essentially the market, and the financial regulators who keep the economy whole. According to Charlotte, one simple reason this was possible in the UK was geography. London's famous square mile means all these myriad stakeholders can hit the pub together and find a way to get along. But proximity is not enough. Strong collaboration across these three groups is critical. If they see themselves as enemies then progress will certainly stall. On the other hand, if they see themselves as partners and share a common ambition to push forward, success is all but inevitable. Building such a consensus is best done under the banner of a national digital strategy, a set of common strategic goals for all branches of government, which together represent a cohesive plan for how a nation transforms to support a digital society. With strong support for fintech already in place, the UK was ready to move to the next step, open banking. Here, again, they got an early head start. Europe's PSD2 legislation, often considered the beginning of regulated open banking, came into force in January of 2018. But in the UK, the Competition and Markets Authority, or the CMA, published their report investigating competition in retail banking almost two years prior, in early 2016. This report, often referred to as just the order, marked the beginning of open banking in the UK, ultimately leading to the establishment of the Open Banking Implementation Entity, or OBIE the organization where Charlotte is now chair. Just as with fintech, UK open banking is often considered a global benchmark. From your perspective, what has been the relationship between the introduction of open banking in the UK 
and the thriving fintech community? This really comes down to, again, what I was discussing on fintech. It's bringing together the relevant parties in the ecosystem, the officials, the government, the regulators, the entrepreneurs, the fintechs, the banks, and the wider business, the end users and the consumer reps, of looking at what what are we trying to achieve and how do we take that forward. We should never just be bringing in innovation to serve a fintech or a bank. We should be looking at it at how it delivers to end users. And that's really important. That's what drove the evolution of open banking. It didn't just take the directive, PSD2, it took it one step further. It recognized that there was needed to be an industry body to set the standards. This is what I work on now, the open banking implementation entity. It was there to implement the standards needed to drive that out from the banks and bring that innovation forward. And again, this came back to the fact that we had already led the way in fintech. We already had the playbook of how people could get around the table, even if they were coming at it from a very different environment. Now, obviously, this came out of a a market order, a CMA order, a competition remedy, as most people would know it. It was set up in 2017 to bring more competition into retail banking. And there was some resistance, obviously. A lot of banks didn't want to have competition where they would have to switch customers away from them. So it did take a long time to get going, as you can probably imagine. But it kept coming back to the fact that everyone was around the same table. And even to this day, even though it's been launched now for you know, coming up to four years, even to this day, we still have a steering group that has that representation from all of those different stakeholders as we look to complete the end of the roadmap. And I think that's quite unique in the UK. I haven't seen many other markets who look at that. I have seen other markets look at the UK open banking standards and how that's been achieved and have taken that forward and are trying to perhaps leapfrog the UK. But it was very unique in its time. And again, probably came out of the fact that we'd already had the fintech community was already a marriage of financial services and tech. And this was really laying the groundwork for what could be shared. And that's where the excitement is now, is is how we're going to drive this forward and how do we take open banking to the next stage. In an effort to help those trying to emulate the UK's open banking success, let's explore that a bit. Would you say it was a case where first the necessary players came to the table and only once they were all there and agreeing on a shared agenda did you have the emergence of a standard? Or was it the other way around, where the emergence of a standard and that stake in the ground acted as a way to bring the relevant players together? The standards was the most important part to get this going. And that obviously came out, as I said, out of the order coming out from the CMA, the Competition Markets Authority, of how to drive this forward. So it was underpinned by regulation. OBIE was set up therefore, to set those standards and bring that forward. But there was already these entrepreneurs who were looking at that, who were able to accelerate those products and services on the back of it to be able to respond to that regulation as well. So we certainly got the march because of the regulation and the fact this was taken forward. And the regulators continued to work with the implementation entity to push the standards forward. As you can imagine, setting standards between some of the nine biggest deposit takers in the UK out to the fintechs, the entrepreneurs who work a lot quicker, a lot more nimble, don't have legacy systems in place, was a challenge, no doubt about it. And I think people recognized that in the early days, that we 
you did an incredible job of bringing everyone together to work out what those standards could look like. Needs to say there wasn't always agreement because you had the banks probably trying to push back on anything that they didn't have to do under the order. And then you had the fintechs who always wanted to do more because they could see the consumer and small business demand to not just have the standards that had to be brought in for the order, but to take it before that. So I think some incredible excitement at the time. And you still see this now, this enthusiasm. It's such a thriving ecosystem in open banking in the UK because there's a genuine need to move our financial services system forward, genuine need to bring more openness and transparency to those end consumers to help those small businesses with their economic recovery, especially post-COVID. So having that out there and being able to share your data with a trusted provider that can show you what's available to you And the ability to change and to move and evolve, I think, is so important. But it wouldn't have probably been done without that initial step of regulation. But equally, it wouldn't have been done without a strong entrepreneurship and financial services industry to take it forward. You have now brought your clear passion for this space to a new challenge. You have taken the role as chair of the OBIE, the infamous entity responsible for building and stewarding the much-heralded UK open banking standard. You have effectively walked through the looking glass behind the curtain. What did you discover upon your arrival at the OBIE? To set a bit of context, back at just after I'd, I'd finished my tenure at Innovate Finance, I was asked to lead the transition of OBIE to what the future entity may become. So I actually had the joy of being uh, working with them a couple of days a week over the summer, looking at how the implementation entity would eventually transition to a future entity. And this has been a wide consultation that's out in the public domain, recognizing that we were close to the end of the initial roadmap for the order. And now it was time to set this challenge to industry to take it forward, perhaps underpinned by regulation in the future, perhaps not. So I was really there to bring together those different voices of looking at what potential governance could look like, what a potential funding model could look like, and what the operating model could look like as well. Now, as as you've said, I've recently taken over as chair and trustee of OBIE. So I'm now much more focused on the roadmap and completing the initial roadmap there. But because of that work I did in the summer, it's also important that we don't forget that there is going to be a new entity at some point, and we're waiting for the regulator to opine on what that will look like and how that will get taken forward. So I had the slight luxury of having thought about the future. Now I have the luxury of looking at the current, working through, getting to know people in the team, getting to know the people in the ecosystem. So you know, there's such a wide and varied amount of experience and knowledge and some of these people I don't know. And it's been great to meet so many who are really driving this forward. And it's an incredibly exciting time as it gets ready to transition to whatever comes next. So certainly busy role, as you can imagine, but important that we remind people of the role that OBI itself has played in bringing these standards in place. In your time leading the transition, There was some unfortunate news that came out of the OBIE. Why don't you tell us a little bit about the Alison White report? Yes, and as you can imagine, I can only say what's in the public domain for obvious reasons. The Alison White report was review, an independent investigation that was run 
on the back of some complainants who had said there'd been bad activity and, and bad culture at OBIE. It was a very thorough investigation. And Alison was there to summarise that, to talk to people, to talk to witnesses on what had gone wrong and what needs to be fixed. And she put in some very robust recommendations and therefore challenges back into the organisation of what happened, what needs to be changed. As you will know, I came in on the back of that and then took over from my predecessor to drive forward that change. First and foremost, in my first few weeks, that's what I've been doing. I've been looking at those recommendations and looking at what I need to do to change it. I've appointed a law firm to talk to existing complainants so that that can be done independently from us as an organisation, because I think that's really important. They can put an independent process in place. I've hired a big consulting firm to come in to give us the management support to make those changes needed. Someone to look at the policies, the procedures, the processes, the controls, and not just are they there on paper, but how are they being followed in practice? And by all accounts, there has been a lot of progress made in the organisation over the last 12 months while that investigation was being undertaken. HR policies have been done. We have moved from a contractor to an employee environment, which is one of the criticisms that was faced. We've put together leadership and development plans. We've looked at how does Exco function together? And importantly, always with the view that we had to deliver the roadmap for the order as well, because we can't forget that. So it's always a challenging time when you're trying to affect change, but you also have a large plate of work to be done as well. I think it's incredibly important we continue to update the market on, on our activity there. So we've just announced the hiring of our second non-exec director. So that's been great to get our second one on board and literally just announced last week. And again, as recently as last week, we announced the launch for search for a CEO. We hadn't had a CEO before. It's quite clear with everything going on and trying to implement this change and really looking at ourselves and testing ourselves and challenging ourselves, can we be held up to the highest standards of scrutiny that we need to have as a standard setting body? And I think that's really important. So I've been updating where I can out into the public domain of what our work there. I have an eight-week piece of work that's going on at the moment with said a very large consulting firm that's coming in to really scrutinize that. And I've told them I want them to tell me what needs to be changed. No organization is perfect. I think we all know that. There's always change. Even if I brought in a fantastic functioning organization that brought in help, I would be making change anyway. But this is looking at best in class to make sure that we have our house in order, to make sure that we can stand up to that independent scrutiny, effectively an arm's length public sector body can do. And to look at those recommendations that Alison White has given us and that challenge and looking at those at the board and saying, can we stand up? I think we've implemented those change. Have we tested the controls that have been put in place so that we can now move forward? And I think that's incredibly important. You need to look backwards to move forward. And I will. I will continue to challenge where I think we need to make changes. And the great thing is I've had so much positive reaction from the team, many of which have started in the last 12 months during lockdown. So don't quite recognize some of this very critical report that they've seen. And that's also been important to show to them that we're putting insurances here. We're making sure this is best in class as well. We don't want to spend all our time dwelling on the past because we want to move forward, but we will learn from the past. And I will continue to update where I can and making sure that our team is cohesive and feels that they have the information that they would like on any questions. So continue to do work there. It's always more challenging when you're doing it virtually. Obviously, nothing can happen quick enough. But I'm really happy to say that we have been working flat out for now for two months on this and we will continue to give updates to the market when needed. In general, how important is culture to open banking? 
not just for the regulator or an industry body, but for the whole ecosystem? Great question, because it's not just important for open banking, but it's also as the standard setting body, it's important that we set ourselves to the highest challenges as well, that we set the bar high. Now, everybody knows in, in financial technology and fintech that there's not enough diversity and inclusion. It's well known for that. And that's not just at open banking, that's across the wider ecosystem as well. So again, what can we do as a standard setting body to have better diversity, to look at a more inclusive culture? And how can we not just do that within our own team, but how can we talk to other ecosystem providers as well of how they do it? It is an ecosystem that is still quite male-dominated, I'm afraid to say. That's the same as fintech. A lot of founders, a lot of executives have come out of banking, which is more male-dominated. We have this real opportunity in fintech to show the way and to show the way forward. And we haven't found that balance yet. You only have to look at investment numbers. And female founders really struggle to attract investment. So again, it's important that we set those standards there, that we hold ourselves to the highest account, because that will ultimately show others within the open banking environment that this is the way that should be done We shouldn't be challenging it. We shouldn't be doing it as a checkbox exercise. This is good governance and it ensures inclusive culture. And I think that's just so important to take forward. UK open banking began with the setting of a standard. The CMA order, a mandate set by the Competition and Markets Authority, led to the establishment of the OBIE, the entity responsible for creating and stewarding that standard. Once established, the standard acted as a flag, a rallying point for those looking to push the financial ecosystem into the future. But make no mistake, the thriving fintech community were already there, chomping at the bit. Again, the importance of collaboration cannot be overstated. To this day, the OBIE brings all stakeholders together at one table. Banks, fintechs, and regulators. And sometimes it has to make tough decisions that please some while disappointing others. When faced with these decisions, Charlotte recommends going back to the end user. Don't try and please the market or appease the regulators. The consumer must always come first. Have you helped them achieve what they wanted to achieve? Have you made their financial life better? These are the most important questions. In her new role leading the OBIE, Charlotte aims to bring her extensive experience from the market side to bear on the standard side. But it hasn't all been smooth sailing. An ugly crisis, rife with reports of bullying, and conflicts of interest rocked the OBIE earlier this year, forcing a change in leadership. These are the sorts of roadblocks that no one sees coming. But UK Open Banking has powered through, bringing in Charlotte and working hard to instill a cultural shift, all while continuing to deliver on the order. So what exactly has been delivered? Regular listeners will already know the major functions of open banking, securely sharing account information and transactions, looking at lists of products across institutions, and sending money directly from your bank. 
As the OBIE nears the end of its implementation phase, all this stuff works and has been in production for years. But they aren't resting on their laurels. After all, there's still more work to be done. Let's talk a little bit about what open banking in the UK can actually do. As the OBIE nears the end of the implementation phase, one of the features they've recently added is variable recurring payments or VRPs. What are VRPs? And for that matter, what other kinds of new features are being considered? Isn't it interesting that we use these acronyms? We use the acronyms within FinTech. We certainly use them with open banking. And I must admit, it did take me a few weeks to sit there and try to work out the different acronyms of what stood for what. And then if you were trying to explain it to what I call the man, the man on the street or the man and woman on the street, if I'm being diverse, what does that mean to them as well? And I don't think anyone would really understand what a variable recurring payment means if you asked anybody. So I think we have to get better at taking out the jargon out of open banking as much as anything else. But effectively, it is a smart direct debit. Now, in the roadmap is, is VRPs for sweeping. So what that's going to mean is you can sweep from your own account into another one of your main accounts. She might be doing that into a savings account, for example. So that's incredibly important, is putting the technology in that allows you to sweep those accounts as and when you see fit. Think of it as a smart direct debit. Think of it as something where you can choose when it ends. You can choose what the length of time is. How many people have been caught out by setting up a direct debit and then forgetting about it and then not stopping it in time? And that's really what VRPs are. The initial phase of that, which is in the roadmap, is the sweeping VRPs. So setting up the technology there, it's not in the roadmap at the moment to have VRPs for for a wider set, but that's something that wouldn't surprise me that industry takes forward. So we're there to implement that technology and set the standards for VRPs for sweeping. And then hopefully, I know a lot of the industry will push forward on what does uh, the premium APIs needed for VRPs. And that again comes back to what the consumer needs. What does consumer want? As you will know in financial services, A lot of people can get quite frustrated with their financial services journey, but they don't really think about the fact they can change it because it's just too difficult to change it. And VRPs is just one of these that sets the standard for what can come next as much as anything. And I think that's really, really important. It's a pain journey for people when they're sitting there looking at those smart direct debits and how can they take more control of financial services. And I'm really happy that we have got that into the roadmap, the extension of the roadmap to take that forward that will allow us then to set the foundation for whatever comes next. From the perspective of the fintechs, are there any crying foul about features like sweeping VRPs saying, well, that's my territory. I offer a roundup service. How dare you introduce this feature into the standard and cannibalize my business? Like anything I've discovered, and it's not just open banking, it's in the wider fintech ecosystem, there's often varying opinions on what needs to be done to take forward. And you you very rarely find that there's a meeting in the middle. And I've discovered that even in my early tenure as trustee. Sometimes the trustee is being asked to weigh in on decisions where you're going to respond to one set of consumers or businesses with the right answer for them, another set of banks might be the right answer for them, and then the entrepreneurs who want to drive forward change. And I think that's the challenge. 
And sometimes we need to go back to the regulators to ask them and say, well, what did you actually mean by putting that order in? What were you trying to achieve by the original regulation? And how can we clarify the definition? These are really complex cases. And when you start to look at the use cases that are coming in from the founders, you can't have thought through every single change of that. We are the standard setting body. It's for others to determine what the competition looks like and looking at the opportunities for the products and services to be developed. And it's us to implement those standards there. It's not for us to sit there and try to drive forward the regulation. That's for others to do. Earlier, you mentioned the future entity, the next incarnation of the OBIE as it nears the end of the implementation phase. Tell us a little more about the plans for this future entity. Now, I'm slightly limited in what I can say about the future entity because, again, this comes back to the regulator to determine what the future entity looks like. Now, as I mentioned, I had a slight advantage there that I was looking at this transition of how transition could work to a future entity. What would be the governance needed to ensure that we have a wide range of views on how that could be taken forward? And so certainly that was the work I did over the summer. But ultimately, there's been a consultation from the CMA, from the regulator, around governance, around protection of the order and how that gets taken forward. And therefore, what should the future entity look like? We are waiting for that announcement to come out from the CMA. They've given us an original time frame of end of this year, beginning of next. I think probably going to be a bit of a challenge to get that done before Christmas. But certainly, we are talking to them about what we do now, what this could look like. We're trying to convene the voices. And there's lots of industry bodies, obviously, there. And we do have the opportunity to map out who should be involved in this and then who should potentially be involved in in either governance or working groups or advisory groups, but ensuring that it's a balanced view. So back to my point, there's often opposing views on what it should look like. And it's, it's not for us to opine on those, but it is for us to ensure that there's some voices are elevated. They don't have uh, huge policy teams behind them. Other organizations are there sent directly into regulators. And that is something that we can obviously do. And very much looking forward to seeing the results of that consultation. I think everybody would recognize them in the UK because of the work that's gone into open banking, because of the standards that have been set, because of the different markets that look to the UK as something that's been achieved. Nobody wants to lose that momentum. Nobody wants to lose it. And so for us, we remind people of that. We remind people of what's been done so far. We show the capabilities of the standards that have been set. And potentially those capabilities can be mapped out to future products as well. But it's for others to determine what that future looks like. The original incarnation of the OBIE was funded by the member banks of the CMA9. They were effectively compelled to fund the OBIE. Again, in an effort to help those who are trying to emulate the UK's success, what new funding models are being considered for the future entity? The only thing I can say about the funding model is really what's in the public domain from the CMA. This was a consultation that they put out earlier in the year where it looked at a tapering. This was put out for consultation, a tapering of the banks, of how that could look going forward. More recent communications, there's been suggestion perhaps of a levy. So again, this will take place during the transition phase. So what we're waiting for is looking at where we're trying to move to, and then there'll be work around that. Now, a lot of that will have to be led by regulators for obvious reason. I think it's difficult to put that back into industry to say, how should this be funded going forward? And it's also looking at different revenue opportunities as well. 
it's quite clear said that those capabilities can be mapped into different areas. Maybe they can be mapped into different markets. There's certainly opportunities to work on that. But again, we're the implementation entity. If we're asked to look at other areas and if there's consensus about us looking at those other areas, then obviously that's something we can take forward. But for now, we are focusing very much on the implementation of the roadmap and then convening views that we hear to make sure they get passed on to the relevant authorities. The OBIE is now nearing the end of their implementation phase and casting an eye to the future. Variable recurring payments, or VRPs, enable accounts to move money around automatically and on a regular basis, representing one of the last features that will be added to the standard before moving on to the next stage. However, Charlotte reminds us that the OBIE is about more than any specific set of features. It acts as a bridge between the regulator, which sets requirements, and industry, which opines on those requirements and builds on top of them in an effort to innovate and meet the demands of the digital consumer. The lesson here is separation of duties. It is not the place of the standards body to support regulation, nor is it their role to drive market activity. The role of the standards body is, quite simply, to set the standard in a way that meets the requirements and supports innovation, all with the end user at top of mind. That's why, when it comes to their future, the OBIE is ultimately waiting on the results of the latest consultation with the CMA, out of which they expect more clarity on what a future entity might look like. Various funding models for this future organization are being considered, but one thing is for certain. Nobody, not the banks, not the fintechs, not the regulators, want to lose the momentum that the UK has now gained, propelling them towards fintech and open banking leadership. To maintain that lead, they're going to have to tackle another group of stakeholders, the most important group, the end users, regular everyday people who need to adopt open banking for it to thrive. That's where we go next. Earlier, you mentioned the man on the street. Indeed, one of our goals on this show is to help describe open banking in a way that's accessible, that anyone can understand. Do you think that open banking has what some call a brand problem? Is it too hard to understand? Do people even need to understand what open banking is? I certainly think if, if you went and asked a consumer, would you like to pay by open banking? 99.9% of the population would probably look at you quizzically and wonder what else you're talking about. So I, I don't think it's a brand problem. I think it's just an understanding of what this actually means. And how do you, how do you explain that to mass population? Now, we've already got four and a half million people using open banking, so we know it's not stopping people using it. We've got fintechs who are looking at the data that's provided through open banking APIs. So again, we know there's a huge service there. But as I said previously, we do need to demystify the language. Now, interestingly, HMRC, the tax authorities, people you know, pay their tax through, 
they bought an open banking earlier in the year. And so what they put on their on the payment options is you could pay by card, you could pay by all sorts of things, or you could pay by bank transfer. And that's as simple as it was, pay by bank transfer. Now, £1.6 billion has gone through bank transfer into HRC over the last few months since that was brought in. An incredible growth of payments. So I think we just need to be careful that we don't confuse consumers and that puts them off. And open banking payments is quite different to open banking data. Open banking data may be consumed by some of the B2B, so some of the fintechs who would understand what the data is. But the sharing of that data is something consumers might be quite concerned about. And we need to understand that so that they can provide this to a trusted provider. And so it's the same as what I was saying on the bank transfer. We need to find language, ideally, that's standardized across consumers and small businesses so people understand what it means. But I think that will evolve over time. And what you'll probably see, like most things, is is whoever gets the most traction, the quickest, will almost set the branding out there. That's interesting. It's almost like you're saying, just call it what it is. For example, you're transferring funds directly from your bank or you're sharing your account information and people will use it and adoption will grow. There's no reason to educate them about the grand movement that is open banking. Is that right? That's right. We don't need to tell them that brand. We need to explain what it does. Just like if you come to the payments page and you're checking out, it will say, do you want to pay by card? People understand what that means. They put in their card number. Do you want to pay by bank transfer? People will understand that as well. I think the thing we have to be careful of is we educate people on what that means. The last thing we want is people to think, is that more risky than putting a card number in? And we saw this on, on the tax payments. About £6 billion is trapped in suspense accounts at the tax authorities because people use one digit wrong on their reference code and it can't be matched up to their tax. So, of course, open banking takes all of that friction out of the system. So we must be careful that we allow people to understand what they're doing and how they're paying. But there probably is a slight nervousness as people get used to this new way of paying that they actually you don't think they're sharing their bank account details and somebody's going to go into their bank account. So it's no different, really, to sharing your card details and probably a lot more risky of sharing your card details there because you're effectively authorizing that in one button to go out straight into your bank account. So that will also be something we'll have to achieve over the next months and years to really demystify. Speaking of the coming years, let's fast forward, say, 10 years, 15 years from now. What does the future of open banking look like to you? I mean, I have to look at sort of what I think and then what OBIE's role is as well, because obviously having worked in in the wider fintech ecosystem, I can look at what I call the art of the possible as open banking transitions to an extension of the, the standards that we've set into open finance and into smart data as well. And there's a huge amount of conversations going on across the financial services and tech community of what that could look like. Our core strength at OBIE lies in our ability to deliver to the accountable order, the regulation, and establish those strong foundations by creating those standards, by creating a directory, and by creating a trust framework. And I think that's incredibly important that we continue to do that piece of it as that standard setting body. Now, that can be applied to future innovations. It can be applied to both financial services sector in the UK in different verticals and different sectors of it, but also it could be applied elsewhere into international hubs as well. An incredible amount of interest coming in from international hubs of what we've done. I think the UK has an opportunity to maintain, therefore, this global leadership 
How many times do we see international hubs take the UK standards and then drive it forward themselves and speak to us or speak to others across the ecosystem? And that's a great position that can be in in the UK. So we shouldn't be complacent on that because we should drive ourselves forward to how do we continue to innovate? How do we continue to take this forward? And how do we give the platform that we have the right mix of banks, of fintechs, of entrepreneurs, of end user community to look at what's possible and how this makes life better? And that is a role we can play. For your peers in other regions who are perhaps on the fence about open banking or unsure where to start, what is your advice? I would definitely suggest that people look at it under two different guises. What's possible on payments and what's possible on data. And I think this is something that has taken us quite a long time to really work out how we can split those out into different conversations. Yes, it's the same technology. Yes, it's the same standards. So you want to bring those into one place, but actually your customers who are using that is going to be quite different. Like we were saying earlier, whoever uses it for payments might be completely different to who's using it for data. And I think that's something that overseas hubs and other, other countries need to be thinking about. I think if we'd really thought about that before, we might have ended up with different conversations on data as it is with payments. We've got there now. And open banking payments, as you can probably imagine, is really growing and really quickly. So even BT, who a lot of people get their telephone provider just a couple of weeks ago, they were the first merchant in UK telco to use the bank pay service for bill payments. So we're already seeing that momentum building on the payment side. The data side will need a different strategy. We have smart data looking at coming out from the business department next year. So again, our conversations with with them may be completely different to what's possible in in payments. So I would definitely suggest people almost look at it as a a dual strategy. One conversation at the top, but then split out the different ecosystem providers as you go down into those two sections. Let's end on that bigger picture, smart data. That's clearly referring to some of the common elements that exist across all sectors of the economy, the notions of secure data sharing, consent, trust frameworks, and many of the other things we've talked about today. What is smart data and where is it taking us? So again, if we were to demystify it, what does smart data mean? It's sharing your data to a trusted provider. And I think that's incredibly important. We always use that language. There is a concern because we have seen a huge amount of fraud and scams, especially during the pandemic, that people don't really trust it. They don't understand where they can share it. And is it safe to share it as well? And what does that mean for them sharing it? Does that mean they get a better financial services experience? Or does that mean they're sharing it with someone who may use it against them? I mean, how many times have people accepted the cookies on a website because they just want to go and search what they want to search for? People don't really understand the implication of what that means. Smart data has to work for the consumer and the business it provides for. It has to make their financial services journey better and more competitive. And that is incredibly important that we make for sure competition comes in, that we look at the art of the possible and work out the data that they give is being given to a trusted provider, the view being that then they have more optionality there They don't just renew because that's who the provider they've always used. They sit there, they think about it carefully. They look at who they're they're sharing that with and they look at therefore what that does for their business or them as a person. And I think that's incredibly important that we look at that with smart data. 
We are obviously in an environment where data and the sharing of data is accelerating every single day. We're seeing this obviously from big tech. It's not just coming from the banks. It's the big tech providers and what data they own and what that's going to mean to, to consumers going forward. And we're, goodness, are we in for a big change over the next 10 years as a result of that? Needs to say, the banks would love to see the data that's coming in from the big tech because that's showing the trends and how they take that data to build products and services around it and look at that on an individual basis using machine learning, using AI. So the opportunity to deliver a better financial services system to everybody using that smart data is incredibly important. What we're going to have to marry up is obviously how we protect the data where people don't want to share it. And our regulator, the ICO, it's an incredibly important role they're going to play over the coming years or for the protection of the data, but the sharing when you agree it. And I think that's going to be the balance we're going to find. And it's the same in open banking and it's the same in open finance. We want to make this journey easier, but we want to make sure people are knowing what's happening to their data, what they're using it for, and then what happens as a result of that. Charlotte, where can our audience find out more about you and the good work you're doing at the OBIE? So we have a website. I invite everyone to go and look at it. It's www.openbanking.org.uk. And then there's also an app store in there as well. So you forward slash app dash store. So then you actually go and look at some of the participants in the ecosystem that are creating those open banking enabled products and services. So I do invite people to look at that. And then you can also find us on Twitter and LinkedIn as well. Thank you so much for joining us on our show. It's been a pleasure. Thank you. And thank you for the invitation. After the recording stopped and the interview was over, Charlotte confided in me that she grew up in a town of 500 people. The nearest bank was over seven miles away. Later, when she went to work for NASDAQ, she observed that the whole of her town could easily fit onto the tumultuous trading room floor. Today, those trading floors remain largely empty as the whole world becomes digital. Such has been the trajectory of banking over the last half century. From a world ruled by giants in suits who demanded you come to them at their place on their terms, to one where banking can be done a thousand different ways, from anywhere, with a few taps on a screen. These giants must now come to terms with Mr. Gates' infamous quote, the world needs banking, but it does not need banks. Make no mistake, we are witnessing nothing less than the creation of the 21st century digital economy. When this transition is done, banking and finance will be virtually unrecognizable. So, if you are a practitioner trying to prepare for open banking, here's a few lessons from Charlotte. First, remember that open banking begins and ends with collaboration. If your fintechs, banks, and regulators cannot find common ground, progress will be painfully slow. Bring these disparate stakeholders together under a common banner, ideally a national digital strategy 
that aligns their objectives and gives them a North Star to follow. Second, remember separation of duties. Draw clear lines between the groups responsible for setting policy objectives and those responsible for promoting market activity, avoiding conflicts of interest. Position the standards body, like the OBIE, as a bridge between these two worlds, a neutral middle party that can absorb input from both sides and use it to build a clear and effective standard that meets consumer needs. Last but not least, don't confuse consumers. These are the very end users who you're trying to help. Put their experience first. There is no need for them to wave the open banking flag. Just speak to them in plain language. Make sure they know what they can do with their money. And adoption will come. As we come to the end of 2021, the entire world, not just the UK, Europe and Australia, but the Americas, Africa, the Middle East and Asia, are all embracing open banking. They are embracing it because it works. Because it makes sense. Because if they don't, they risk being left behind. To those out there building, making open banking real, I salute you. When you have one of those days where it feels like you're stumbling around in the dark, always remember, you're not alone. There's plenty of others like you doing whatever they can to show us all how open banking is done. And with that, we have reached the end of our second season. To our regular listeners, thank you for your precious time and your patience. It is my sincere hope that you've enjoyed the journey so far as much as we have. To our new listeners, we invite you to subscribe so you can join us for the next season of Mr. Open Banking. Thanks for listening to Mr. Open Banking, the podcast that explores the ongoing evolution of open banking and its impact on our lives. Make no mistake, the rise of open banking is going to change financial services forever. And we will be covering that story every step of the way. This is your host, A.L. Savan. Until next time. This episode was made possible by Axway, leaders in enterprise integration for over 20 years and creators of the Amplify platform. To learn more, visit axway.com.